Hey, listeners, before we get into today's podcast, I just first of all want to say thank you. Uh, This has been five years of podcasting for us, and I want to say thank you to those who have been here five years listening to us and those who are this is your first time listening. Um, It's been a a phenomenal journey and a lot of fun, and I, I can't think of how else I would like to spend the next five years other than continuing to podcast and bring hopefully bring you guys some great shows and great interviews. Um, with that being said, I want to thank today's sponsors, first of which is Pretentious Pickles, um, our good friends at Pretentious Pickles, located right here in Plymouth, Massachusetts on 190 Water Street, um, have a huge variety of pickled items for your um, consumption. There's pickled beets, Brussels sprouts, carrots, mushrooms, cucumbers, you name it, they've put it in a jar and pickled it. They make a phenomenal product and for the second year in a row have been nominated I'm sorry, not nominated, one uh, best gourmet shop in the South Shore, Massachusetts area. So congratulations to Lorraine and everyone at Pretentious Pickle Company. And if you can't make it to their store, you can stop by www.pretentiouspickle.com and you can place an order online. They'll ship it right to you. Um, it's if, if you're into pickles, you should definitely check that out. And today's second sponsor is Omeo. Omeo is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. Just enter your travel details and Omeo will magically give you all the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. It's never been simpler to book your first real vacation of 2021. Best of all, using Omeo saves you time and money. That's a win-win in our books. Omeo wants to help you leave your house this summer by offering 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com, that is O-M-I-O.com, and use the code OMEO5 at checkout. Valid until July 31st for new users on all modes of transportation. It's just the pick-me-up 2021 needs. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, Inebriates. This is Andy, the Inebriar Podcast. And uh, today we are joined by an author, uh, Catherine Dykstra, who is uh, just recently put out a book called What Happened to Paula? Correct? That's correct. Um, so it, if you know my, my brief research is uh, going to make me not seem like an idiot, it is a true crime novel. Uh, it, it is. It's, it's definitely a true story. It's a nonfiction book. Um, they've categorized it as true crime, um, but I don't think it's a traditional true crime in that you don't find out, you know, who done it at the end. Um, the, the book is more really about like why this crime happened and mm-hmm. like all of the, um, you know, sort of systemic things in our society that lead to women getting killed often <laughs> oh that's that's interesting. I, I feel like true crime is like such like the the you know the buzzword it's the it's the gluten-free in the entertainment world you know no for sure and it was you know it's a hard book to categorize because i mean it does 100 revolve around the death of a girl mm-hmm. um but it also includes memoir i talk a lot about the women in my own family 
Um, and it includes a lot of, you know, sort of sociological studies from both the 1970s when this girl was, or the 19, late 1960s when this girl was alive, um, as well as today, and like how those things sort of transcend um, time and, you know, what has changed and what hasn't changed for women. So why did you want to address this particular instance? Well, it's actually, it's funny. So when I met my husband, um, so his mother went to school with this girl mm -hmm. um, and they never overlapped, but they knew one or, or my mother-in-law, Susan, knew who Paula was. Um, and it was sort of something that had sat with her, this unsolved crime for, uh, you know, many, many years. And she was kind, you know, became kind of obsessed with the fact that um, there were a lot of failings in the case. The police failed her, the media failed her, um, and, you know, society failed her. And so she sort of became obsessed with this case. And when I met my husband, um, Susan, my mother-in-law, was working on a documentary film. Um, she's a writer, but her mm -hmm. husband's a filmmaker and TV person. And they were working on a, a film about this girl's death. Um, and I, they invited me, so I'm a journalist. And when my mother-in-law found that out, she said, well, maybe this is something that you'd be interested in. They were mm -hmm. all taking this trip to Cedar Rapids in, I guess it was 2008. Um, and I agreed to go on the trip, but I told her that I would not be participating in researching this girl's death because mm -hmm. frankly, it scared me. It frightened me. Um, you know, I, at that time in my life, I was, you know, single and living on my own in New York and, you know, sort of trying to find my own way and to think about the ways that women are at risk in the world was something that I couldn't entertain because to do that was to sort of question my own safety and my own right. security. So, I told them, I was like, nope, this is not something I'm interested in, um, but I'll come with you because I was trying to get to know the family. And, you mm -hmm. know, it was just... so we all went on this trip and I didn't, you know, they would go off in the day and do their interviews and all of that stuff. And I would kind of like stay at the house and hang out and cook dinner and stuff. Um, and then like flash forward about six years in 2014. And by this time I'm now married and I've just had uh, my first uh, child and Susan circles back to me again. And at this point, um, she's been unable to make the documentary that she wanted to. The big problem being that there is no ending. There is no, you know, they weren't able to solve it, even though that was that was a goal. Um, and she said, I, you know, she couldn't let go of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, and she said, I, you know, I, I really think that this is something that you would be interested in when you look at it again. And at this point in my life, I was suddenly sort of, um, I had become very aware of my womanhood. You know, I had spent my, you know, my early career feeling like, you know, I could do anything that a man could do, you know, and it feeling very, um, I don't know. I just didn't really question my gender. Um, but then I had a child and I saw how quickly my life and my husband's life, like my life changed in a way that was different from his, yeah. you know, he sort of like, I mean, his life was changed for sure, but I was just like, I was completely remade. Like I couldn't, I wasn't able to go back and work 
it, you know, in the way that I thought I would be able to, and, you know, I wasn't able to do any of the things I was doing before, basically. Um, and that sort of brought up and then sort of simultaneously, you know, this was 2008. So in the air, like, you know, women were coming out against Bill Cosby at that time. Yeah. And there was a whole bunch of, oh, I'm sorry. I said 2008, this was 2014. This was after okay. my son. Um, and suddenly there was all this sort of like anger in the air. And when I started to think about it and I, you know, the two things that I knew about Paula's case were that, um, she might've been pregnant when she disappeared and she disappeared three years before Roe v. Wade. And um, yeah. And so those two things just seemed so relevant to, you know, the situation of women today. So at that point I was angry and ready to sort of examine how this girl could be forgotten and sort of dismissed and failed. Um, so it's a very long way of getting to how I came <laughs> to, uh, no, into the story. It, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because um, we've actually had a uh, author on one of our shows not too long ago. And uh, she wrote a book about a fairly local serial killer that they never found and, um, you know, targeted um, women who were prostitutes and drug addicts. And, right. and, and it was one of those so long ago where we're now she theorized that if it happened today, they'd be able to be caught just by, you know, where, where was your cell phone pinged last, that kind of thing. Do you think that, that this is purely systematic um, or do you think it has something to do with the day of when it occurred? I think it's both for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you talk to many of the detectives are deceased at this point, um, but Susan was able to talk to some before I came on board and before they died. And I was able to talk to um, both one who was pretty crucial to the case and, or who did a lot of work on the case as well as the, the current cold case team. And they all maintain that if we had all of the, um, you know, technology, the DNA, you know, um, today, then, then this crime would be solved. And, and there's veracity to that for sure. Um, however, this is a little bit of a tangent, but the Cedar Rapids cold case team. So this is where this girl, Paula Oberbrockling, uh, lived. Uh, the Cedar Rapids cold case team was able to just use DNA, um, in order to solve the case of Michelle Martinko, which was another girl who had been killed in Cedar Rapids in, this was, I think, seven years after Paula died. So it was like 1977 or 78, maybe. Mm -hmm. And um, her case also went unsolved for 45 years or however long. And the cold case team that's current was able to, you know, obtain DNA off of a straw that they had you know, of a suspect. And it was like this real, you know, you know, this really uh, gumshoeing type, uh, you know, event. And now, and now this man who's currently being convicted for this, you know, the, the murder of Michelle Martinko. Um, So it is true that those things happen. However, you know, when Paula disappeared on, you know, July 11th in 1970, um, 
you know, her, she had borrowed her roommate's car overnight, like sort of in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, she left wearing like sort of, a, you know, like a very light dress and no shoes. And when um, the next morning she still hadn't returned with the roommate's car, of course, the roommate and Paula's mother and family and, um, you know, she had two boyfriends, one of the, or there were two men in her life, two guys, one of the guys, you know, they all started searching for, you know, the car and they found the car, you know, outside this sort of, you know, quickie shop type place. And it was, it was parked in a no parking zone. And, um, you know, the, the, the back windows were down and, you know, the car was unlocked and there was nothing inside. And the, you know, Paula's mother immediately called the police and said, my daughter is missing and we found this car and the police got to the the, the scene and they didn't dust for fingerprints. They didn't, they barely looked in the car, but they told Debbie Kellogg, uh, Paula's roommate that she needed to move it or else it would be towed. So this was the, the attitude toward the police, I'm sorry, the attitude of the police toward this missing girl was just complete disinterest and nonchalance. They, in fact, you know, I think it was four days passed before they conducted the first interview with Paula's mother. And, um, you know, they, the first conversation that Paula had, uh, Carol Oberbrockling, Paula's mother had over the phone with police was, um, you know, she wanted, she was saying my daughter is missing. And they said, oh, that's what girls do. She's probably at some concert like Woodstock. She's probably like, yeah, it was just, they were very dismissive of the idea that, you know, Paula might be uh, in trouble. Um, And that sort of like ran its course throughout the whole case. Like the media, the, you know, the Cedar Rapids Gazette, who, who, which did an excellent job covering other things. Like they're, you know, they, they had the journal, the the chops, like I saw evidence of other cases that were covered, you know, from start to finish in, in, you know, excellent pieces of journalism. Um, They only wrote three stories ever about Paula's death. One of which was her obituary. And then one of was the discovery of her body. So there were, there was no one saying, why hasn't this crime been solved? You know, there was no one advocating really for Paula. Right. I mean, it's one of those, like if you had put a story out earlier, it would draw more attention and someone might be like, Oh, I remember seeing someone pull in there or park there or whatever. And, Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so Susan, my mother-in-law was able to obtain a copy of the police file. So that was something that I had, um, which is rare for, you know, an, an open investigation because, you know, it was never solved. Um, but the whole time that I had the file, I thought it was so like, it's like, you know, maybe, gosh, no, I'm not exactly sure, but like between 100 and 200, it's, it's no more than 200 pages. Um, but I thought that it was a lot. I was like, oh, 200 pages of you know interviews and this and going back and forth or whatever. And um, it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago that I was listening to a podcast actually about another unsolved case that was equally long. And they were talking about having like 40 bankers boxes worth of you know, reams of paper and yeah. and then it was only then that I realized, like, oh my god, they did nothing. Like this is the like they, like this hundred this two hundred pages is, you know, over fifty years. Right, right, right. That that's like nothing when you figure out. I mean, what is that like two pages a year? 
Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, four pages I mean, a year. Well, yeah. they, and they did it. I mean, it was all like you know, it was all done within the first year. But yeah, they 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 ab- they practically abandoned the case within you know the first two years. Were there ever primary suspects, or was it just a complete lack to to look into? Like, I don't want to spoil too much of the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So, if you look at the police file, they they sort of rule people out mm-hmm. for very, I would say, strange reasons. I mean, I'm not a detective, so I don't yeah. know. But like, for example, um, her, she had two boyfriends. Um, one was white and one was black. Mm-hmm. And her, the white boyfriend, uh, Lonnie Bell, was with her the night that she disappeared early on in the night. And, um, you know, he was sort of a wild card type and um they interviewed him i think twice and they found a bunch of holes in his like discrepancies and there were a lot of things that didn't really fit with uh what they knew um which was suspicious yeah however he drove a porsche and the like one of the detectives visited a porsche dealership and measured the size of the trunk that Lonnie Bell had and then said, oh, well, Paula, so Paula was tall and she, you know, she wore like a, you know, size nine shoe or size yeah. 11. She was, she, was, she was tall. She was big. And um, they said, oh, well, Paula could never have fit in his trunk. And that was the reason that they. That seems really. Right. Funny. Like, yeah. I mean, it's not in those words she couldn't fit in his trunk and therefore we're not investigating further. It was just like, this was sort of the last entry about Lonnie Bell. And, and my question is like, well, could she have fit in his passenger seat or could she have fit in another car? Another car. Yeah, exactly. Um, So there were lots of things like that. Yeah. Um, And so you say it's systemic so do you feel this is the kind of thing that happens across other cases as well um when it comes to women that you know that that it's just kind of put on the oh like you said you know, well, that's what girls do they kind of go off or whatever yes i do um th- so one of the interesting things is that there were girls turning up dead all over cedar rapids and all over that area the midwest you know mm-hmm. during the late 60s and so as i was researching paula's case these other instances would crop up like I would be introduced to so for example there was another woman Julie Benning who was also Paula was found just outside the mouth of a culvert which is like a that diverts rainwater and um Julie Benning was found stuffed into a culvert um in Waverly Iowa which is um I'm not sure exactly how far from Cedar Rapids but within the you know vicinity and her, I interviewed her sister, Carol Keene, and she talked about the police disinterest in Julie Benning. So Julie, she was a high school graduate. And when she got out of school, her father told her that she had to get a job and she applied and and that they wouldn't pay for college. Mm -hmm. Um, And she applied to jobs all over the area. And the only job she was able to get was at the Sir nightclub, which was like, you know, a club where women danced. And she wasn't a dancer. She was a waitress. So it wasn't even that she was taking her clothes off, which 
should also be, you shouldn't be killed for that either. But, right. you know, so she wasn't even putting herself, you know, in, I'm using air quotes here, like danger by dancing. Um, all she did was work there, but um, sort of the general consensus was, oh, while well, she worked in this club, this was the thing that got her killed, or this was the thing that led to her. And, you know, this idea being that it's a woman's choices be them to work in a club or like in Paula's case to like have premarital sex or to date a black guy. Like, yep. you know, they really dismissed her because that was, you know, seen as so awful at the time, you know, they'll think about the late sixties in the Midwest. And so it's like these decisions that led to their deaths and not the choice of whomever killed them to kill them. Right. I never understood that. And um, I was referring to that other um, author we had on and it was always that like oh well they were on drugs or well they were a prostitute and it's like well they still didn't deserve to die right like, yeah you know right. there's still someone out there killing them that's yeah. worse killing is worse than drugs you know okay. yeah it's and so I feel bizarre. like that's like um you know my book sort of goes into that it's like it could be anything you know they could be to you know too dependent on drugs or mm -hmm. too pregnant or too single or too black or too, you know, too immigrant or too anything. Like there's, it, it, um, the way that we look at, we're like, oh, well they're this. So yep. they put them, them themselves at risk, but that's not, that's, that's a, um, that's false. That's a false narrative. Yeah. Um, I, I see that a lot. And then you kind of also see the people who, you know, maybe have a drug addict in their life, but they'd be like, oh, well, that's different because, you know, he got addicted to drugs because of, you know, he was taking opioids for pain and that's how he got. So that's different. And yeah. it's just like, it's not different. You just know the story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a story for everyone. And the thing is, is like our emphasis on those types of stories just serves to excuse the fact that women are being killed, right? Like if we, if we, if we paid so much attention to like this other narrative, the idea that like, oh, well, she danced in a club or, oh, she did this. Mm -hmm. What we're doing is we're giving a pass to whomever, you know, is doing it. Yeah. You have happened. a murderer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's bizarre. So you said you started, you're, you are a journalist. I shouldn't say started as a journalist, but, um, so how was writing, a a a I always get these backwards. A fiction, no, nonfiction novel, um, different than normal journalism. I mean, so I had to, when I was first considering writing this book, or when I was first drawn to the case, I thought that it was going to be a magazine article. Like I sort of, the, my idea was like sort of a long form journalism type piece mm -hmm. examining sort of the things that were working against Paula. And, um, but as I was working on that piece and sharing it with my trusted readers. So here, I'll back up one, one second. And that is to say that my mother-in-law, Susan, when she was, you know, not only did she try to make a documentary, but she tried to sell a TV series. She tried to write a book. She tried to fictionalize this story. Like she tried to come out this story in a thousand different ways. And the answer that she continually got over and over again was who cares? Who cares about some girl who died? Like, it was just this like 
complete disinterest. So like the same, the same idea that the cops gave, you know, Paul's mother in 1970 was what Susan was getting in the 2000s, you know, from Mm -hmm. agents and editors and all sorts of like people, you know, gatekeepers or whatever, who cares? So when I took it on and I thought it was going to be this magazine article and I shared it with my team, the people that I trust, um, I sort of got a level of the same disinterest. It was like, I don't understand why this is relevant. And for me, I like, that was, I, my, I, it was always so shocking because I was like, how is this not relevant? Like, how is it not inter- Like, I don't understand. Expe- like you said, especially since like the whole Weinstein Cosby, yes, you know, like all it, that stuff going on. It's super relevant. Exactly. Like, I just felt that it was so like, yes, I, I did not understand how someone could read about Paula's case or hear about Paula's case and not be interested. Um, so then I started thinking about like, okay, well, if nobody else is interested, the question I would always get is why are you interested? And I was, and that made me think that maybe I needed to approach this a little differently. So, you know, I'm a journalist, but I also like, I got my MFA in narrative nonfiction. And so that, and the thing that I love, what I love to read are like essays and sort of, um, you know, nonfiction with a very heavy eye. Um, meaning like a very heavy, uh, you know, authorial perspective. Yeah. Um, so I started to think, well, maybe if I sort of, if, if I st- start to frame this story from my own point of view and I show the reader the reasons that I'm attracted to it or that why I think it's important, mm-hmm. maybe they also will think it's important. And so that's how it sort of became this blend of three different things. So it became Paula's story, which is like, you know, highly researched and, um, and journalistic. And then it's my, you know, sort of my frame on top of that. So how I'm responding to the things I'm learning about Paula's story and the way that I'm, I, you know, view it or judge it or, you know, understand it. Um, And then this like third, like sort of sociological context of like, this is what it was like, you know, for the races in, 1970 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And this is what it was like, you know, um, if you were married, you know, this was the way domestic violence was viewed in 1968. And so there's like these sort of three uh, uh, threads running through the whole book or three perspectives, I guess. And when you write something more traditional journalism, do you try to take out kind of your personal opinion and your personal slant on it and just kind of I mean, so journalism has changed so much over, you know, definitely the last 20 years, but I'd say, you know, even longer than that, the last 30, where, you know, the idea of um, complete objectivity is, you know, it's, it's impossible, right? So right. if somebody's writing a story, like even, so if, if you want to talk about strict journalism being the front page of the New York Times, right? There's no, mm-hmm. there's definitely no I in there. There's no, you know, but just the framing of the story, just the choices of what parts of the story to include and what to leave out and the way that, you know, the, the you know, any narrative is structured, like that implies subject, to, like it implies that sure. you know, the writer is, is, is judging. So um, I actually don't write very much strict journalism anymore. Um, my, you know, after I got my MFA, my big thing, I, I was very into essay, which is, mm-hmm. you know, sort of um, both. It's like researched, um, but also, you know, 
framed yeah um, with my own perspective and what topics do you typically do do you typically catch your attention or or is it mostly kind of true crime or is it like oh no i definitely yeah. so i never like i was never a true crime person before this case this yeah. is like i never watched law and order svu i never watched i don't i didn't read true crime like it was like i said it like it frightened me literally yeah. to, to think about that so so no um what did i write before well <laughs> frankly it's been so i've been on this case for mm-hmm. i mean at this point it's seven years so it feels like before was so long ago But at that time, I was editing a literary magazine. So I was doing, um, you know, a lot of editorial work. And then as far as my own writing goes, I was, you know, I had just had my son. um, So I was writing a lot about motherhood and parenting and those types of things. I've written about my own travels. I've written, um, you know, a number of, but long before so when I had my son, I was writing real estate at the New York Post. I was editing this literary magazine, Guernica. I was the nonfiction editor. Um, and I was teaching nonfiction at NYU. Um, and so I guess you could say like the, the stuff that I was doing for the Post, like was all real estate. And yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Like you've mentioned several times about. Your, the birth of your son it sounds like that was a real like turning point which i totally get like my life changed so much when i had my kids and it's i feel like when you are younger you kind of be like oh no i'd understand what that's like and then it happens and you're like this is you know just such a like i was telling this, a friend of mine recently had a baby and i was telling her a story about how my son was home from the hospital maybe I don't know, like maybe four days and I'm rocking him to sleep. And all of a sudden I was just like, oh shit, he lives here. This is his yeah. house. No one's coming to pick him up. And I, that was like that moment where like it, the light bulb went off and it's such a life-changing thing. For sure. It was a huge transition for me, both like challenging and clarifying. Like, mm-hmm it was challenging and that I suddenly realized like how precious my time was and, you know, how, um, sort of, I mean, yeah, just that, that, that there, I couldn't do, I didn't have the time to do the same things that I did before in the way that I did them. But then it was clarifying and that I was like, wait a minute, I'm not going to do like it. It's suddenly all of the things that I did, became a matter of choice Mm -hmm. so it was very easy for me to be like you know my new york post job that like barely paid my rent like i don't need to do that anymore that's not that wasn't my passion right Right. i was only doing that to make enough money to but then when you factor in childcare, it was like no money at all so it was Mm -hmm. very easy for me to be like all right i'm not doing this anymore you know the guernica job you know, I love editing and I love that work, but that, that was, that was pro bono. So right. at that point, like, I'm not doing this anymore. So it just like, it served to make me decide, okay, what's important to me artistically, what's important to me, you know, as far as money goes, where do I see? And in that way, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm grateful. I love my, my kids and, you know, that was a great thing to do. But as far as, you know, from the lens of a professional 
life, you know, it really served to focus and drive me. Like, I don't know that I would be here right. Actually, I know I wouldn't be here right now. I wouldn't have written this book had it not been for my son. Yeah. Like it was, it was really the thing that uh, allowed me to see the story um, and to believe and to, and to care enough to do it, you know, to kind mm -hmm. of, um, it's like you get to a point in your life where it's like, all right, you got to do this or not. You know, like I could, I could do all this freelance work and put out these essays and sort of be all over the place for as long as I want to, or I can focus and try to sell and write this book, which was, um, yeah. You know, yeah, it, it's it's, it's just it. funny how like it kind of strips away a lot of the the nonsense that you're focused on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how old are your is your son? Did you say you have more than one kid? Or? Yeah, I do. So my son is just turned eight, and my daughter just turned five. And oh, I, so they're still little. Yeah, they're little. I have little yeah. kids. Um, it's it's interesting and, and kind of as you're talking about you know this the systemic issues with women and it's it's really kind of gotten more in kind of on my radar because my daughter is now 17 um she's uh lgbtq plus so it's just it's really fascinating to kind of see how like her struggles like becoming an adult and how people, you know, will kind of pigeonhole her or, or, you know, because she is, you know, LGBT, LGBTQ plus, um, how they have thoughts and, and opinions and be like, Oh, that's cause you're, you're, you're young and you haven't like, you know, haven't really experienced yeah. things. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's really tough. Like, um, I took her to pride two weekends ago. Yeah. Two weekends ago. And just sitting uh, after lunch, it was just, she was so thankful that I was just like accepting her for who. And I'm like, I just want you to be happy. Like it's, yeah. I don't care. And um, so it, it's interesting to see those kind of struggles because I never had them, you know, right. um, cis white guy. My life's been pretty easy. It, is there, do you think it's easier now for women or, I mean, it's got to be easier, right? <laughs> I hope it's easier. <laughs> some ways it for sure is like I love to hear that your daughter is able to you know identify that in herself and then decide to go I like I think that you know even even 15 years ago even 20 years ago like I don't think that it was as easy there uh to feel I think there was probably a lot more fear about yeah. being honest about who one was uh so I think in those ways it's for sure better um, however, there are so many things that sort of remain like, you know, the, I mean, take like women's access to reproductive, you know, right. Their reproductive mm -hmm. rights. Like, you know, not only is Roe back on sort of the docket right here yeah. next year, they're going to, I mean, I, I, I'm terrified they're going to overturn it. Like from what I hear, like it's, it's it's going to happen. Um, but not only that, like there are women across this country that it doesn't, it doesn't matter that it's legal. They still can't. Right. I mean, there's, there's so many, cause it's one of those, they'll, they'll make it illegal through other channels. They'll or exactly. just make it impossible. 
they've made it almost impossible. So unless you're privileged and, you know, have support all around you, it's, it's next to impossible to get an abortion. Like you've talked, you know, women in Texas and in, you know, some of these states where there's only one provider or none at all, mm-hmm. you know, and then factor in the, you know, that they might have a very low wage job that won't let them leave for the amount of time and then waiting period. So they've got to go twice, you know, so it, it, it's really extremely difficult. And, and I feel like you can kind of um, extrapolate that to all different you know, yeah, great. Me too. This is awesome. You know, that women are saying like, we're not going to accept the, you know, the indignities and the, you know, assaults that we, you know, suffer at the hands of the men we work with or, you know, men in society in general. And that's amazing. However, like still, if you read the paper all every single day, there's women coming out, which means that mm-hmm. it is still happening. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like, it's, in the, the, you know, these conversations are important. And I definitely think that they have improved, um, you know, women's agency and, and um, their strength and sort of the idea that, you know, they don't need to be afraid. However, women still are. But there was a story I just read the other day. And I can't remember that. I can't remember because there are so many. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the the situation, but the woman came out in the Times and talked about either, I think it was like a coaching staff or something that she, that had assaulted and raped her or whatever. And she said that she wasn't going to name the, you know, the aggressor because she was afraid of how, you know, of, of, of any, the ramifications that go along with that. So it's like, we're still at this place. Like she felt comfortable enough or she felt, um, you know, enraged enough to write an op-ed in the times. Excellent. Yep. But like this man is still, you know, somewhere. Yeah. Maybe Cause I mean, we still, we as a society still victim blame, you know, exactly. and like, well, why were you there while, you know, how much of this was your fault that, you know, and it's just like, it's exactly. Not. Yeah, she yeah, that's in that and I think I feel like that's what she said. She said in the piece, she said, I just I can't go through all of the, you know, um the torment that this will bring up if I go after this person. Like it's less it's I, I would rather not do that than than name yeah. this name. So. What do you think society wise we can do better? Oh gosh, it's so hard. Um Definitely. I feel like speaking out is a huge thing. I feel like the more women that talk about and, and men, you know, talk about their, you know, the, the, their experiences and their frustrations. Um, I think the more comfortable that we feel as a society, you know, to, um, you know, not only serve justice, hopefully, mm-hmm. but, you know, um, there's a quote that I, that I like to bring up always from Judith Herman, who's a trauma expert. And she says something like, um, those who bear witness are caught in conflict between the perpetrator and the victim. The witness has to take a side just by virtue of being a witness. Um, and all the perpetrator asks is that the witness remain silent. Um, the victim demands action. 
right? Yeah. So, so if you, you know, if, if something happens and you decide to re- remain silent, then you're, you're, you're weighing in on the side of the perpetrator, right? Mm-hmm. But if, um, you know, if you bear witness and you speak out, then you're speaking out on, on behalf, behalf of, of the victim. victim. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I feel like that's step number one. But then secondly, I, I do think that, you know, so much of this is in our systems and, um, which means that I think we can continue to pass legislation and, you know, like Bill Cosby, oh my God, just, this, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's unreal. like, it's, right. It's unreal. So it's like, how do, how do these loopholes present themselves? Why do they present themselves and how can we, um, legislate so that they don't, right. um, you know, so, I mean, he deserves to be behind bars and, mm-hmm. Yeah, I I saw that, and I I honestly didn't even read the whole article. I just saw the headline, and I'm like, well, I'm gonna be hearing about that for weeks on end, and it's just it's just tragic, right? It's shocking. Um, you know, and that prosecutor was like a a buddy of Trump, so no, that's not (laughs) not very surprising. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you know, and in in, it's interesting you're talking about people coming forward and it kind of made me think about, you know, we were talking earlier and I said, you know, that people tend to excuse or understand the story when it's close to them. We were talking about addicts where I'm like, oh, you know, I understand how this person became an addict, but that other person is just a drug addict. So I suppose if pe- more people come forward, it's more likely that you're going to know that victim. You're going to have a better understanding of what they've been through. And maybe that yes. would encourage them to, you know, your 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 smaller circle to, you know, be more active or or, or vote for legislation. So, I I agree with you one hundred percent. There's some amazing study that was done, um, and I think it was about people going door to door, and they were talking about, um, I think I think gay rights, and this was a study. This was a, like a while ago at this point. And they learned that when, you know, even someone who was totally closed minded, when they when the door opened and there was someone, you know, gay in front of them who was Mm -hmm. like, this was my story or this was my experience. It was like they were able to find commonality. It's like just being just being face to face with someone, you you see someone else's humanity and you're able to extend, you know, maybe something that you might not. Yeah, for sure. Been able to or thought you were able to before that. So yeah, yeah, what you say, I think is true. So I just want to say thank you. Um, Where can our listeners go to find out what or find not find (laughs) out what happens because we already said, but where can they find your book? What happens? Yeah, I mean, you should be able to find it anywhere. Go to your local bookseller and request it. That's probably the best place. It's called What Happened to Paula on the Death of an American Girl. Um, and you can also go to Barnes and Noble or Amazon mm-hmm. and I'm at, uh, Catherine Dykstra, my full name.com. Um, so you can come see me at my website and, um, find a way to buy the book there as well. Are you planning on doing any book tours this year? Or? Well, it's so weird it's right the, now. Uh, it's very so, weird. <laughs> yeah. I've, um, when the, so the book came out June 15th. And I did five events at bookstores sort of across the country, which was kind of neat from, from my office here. Yeah. Um, But I'm continuing, you know, I, I would like to, I, you know, I plan to go to Cedar Rapids. I'd like to go, I'm from Kansas. So I'd like to go back to Kansas city and, 
read there, you know, maybe in the fall, I think people are going to start feeling much more comfortable having, you know, booking these in-person events. Yeah. Yeah. We just had uh, fireworks uh, here downtown Plymouth last night and it was very busy, but still not as busy as it normally is. And uh, it, it was a weird vibe. Like people were happy to be out, but still you could tell people were still hesitant and there's still a lot of masks yeah. and yeah. It's sort of, I think nobody knows quite what to do. Yeah. Um, so hopefully by the fall. Excellent. Well, hopefully you come up here and um, yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us. It was really fascinating. Um, sure. Thank you, Andy. No problem. And uh, to our listeners, we'll catch you guys again next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can find us on all social medias at inebriart or on Instagram at inebriart6. You can email us at inebriart at yahoo.com. And make sure you listen to the other podcasts on the Inebriart Podcast Network, including Bar Talk, Old Colony Cast, Retro Redoctopus, America's Hometown Horror Podcast, and our newest one, Theme Park Legends, a podcast about working at theme parks. What else? And we'll catch you again next time.